0: You are listening to Post-Growth Australia Podcast. The podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello all and sundry and welcome back for another episode of PGAP. Now a few milestones to share here. Firstly, as of yesterday, PGAP's last episode with Leif Van has become the most listened to episode so far on PGAP's admittedly short history. On reflection, I'd like to give all the credit to the combined beguiling charm of Leaf and I being completely irresistible. However, listen spiked soon after Macro Business co founder David Lewin Smith shared the interview with their very dedicated membership base. So, David, can't thank you enough. At the end of last episode, I invited anyone to share your thoughts as to whether or not it is possible to decouple economic growth from physical growth, as was suggested a month ago by economic journalist Ross Giddens in the Fairfax Press. A macro business reader named SPS 179 replied in the comments section, clearly no, it is vital to understand that emissions trading Carbon neutrality, net zero emissions, Green New Deal, and how much more time do you have? These are all economists' proxies for endless growth under business as usual. Until one is serious about the environmental problem of the 8 billion two legged lemmings, one is not serious at all. SPS 179, I think we are in furious agreement here. The line is still open for your thoughts. I would love more than anything on listener feedback on anything discussed on PGAP and your ideas and thoughts on what a post-growth society looks like for you and what it would take to get there, if you even think that such a thing is possible. I'll provide a link to the contact page in the episode description and please don't hold back. I know I'm sounding like a broken record now, but I would encourage giving a review and or rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, if you have any one of these. I joke that the PGAP audience is the only thing that I want to see grow, (laughs) but metadata is important. And the more ratings there are, the more that discussions on post-growth will be less fringe and more mainstream. So a big thank you to everyone who has so far reviewed, and I'm happy to say we're having clear five-star ratings, which is great. In this episode I'm very honored to be joined by Kelvin Thompson long-time federal labor mp now chief of staff for Clifford Hayes a sustainable australian member of the Victorian Legislative Council since 2018 representing southern metropolitan region Kelvin has been vocal for decades on the limits to growth which has made him unique not only as a major party politician, but also apart from most modern day environmentalists due to his stance on issues such as overdevelopment and population. Now, I've been pondering a long time on this tough philosophical question, to politic or not to politic. Over the course of my life, I've been involved with a few of the smaller political parties. I even ran for the federal seat of Melbourne in 2013. From that experience, I knew it was not my path to enter the political game. Something about the push to get people to do me a favor and vote for me felt a little bit odd and a little bit too much. Given the nature of political funding and the voting preferential system in Australia, it is very difficult for a micro party or independent to be elected. Even if you do manage to win a seat, it is still you versus the rest of the parliament, so the odds of pushing a game-changer bill are very much stacked against you. Even if you are elected as a major party representative, there is pressure to toe the party line or being vetoed or outvoted if you go the path of a maverick. There is pressure to water down one's integrity to suit the donor and funders of the party and also to appeal to the widest net of the voter base. I have seen a small but positive shift in the Victorian state government with the election victories for both Animal Justice Party and Sustainable Australia. I am also very aware of the many, many volunteer hours and the associated blood, sweat and tears that are invested to achieve incremental and often unpredictable results. It can be very difficult to quantify whether the effort in equals the achievements out. However, if this is true for independent aspiring politicians, then this same caution applies for all forms of advocacy and activism. Isn't it true for the environmental movement as a whole? We've had decades of campaigning and burnout, and yet still destruction and development march on, whether this be dredging coral reefs for coal, draining sacred rivers in the Kimberley for cattle and cotton, and desecrating sacred trees of First Nations significance for road widening. It is certainly true that Sustainable Population Australia, to whom I am communications manager for and who have made this podcast possible, have been lobbying for 30 years and yet it has been COVID, not sparse lobbying, that has put a pause on population growth. Now, speaking of progressives going nowhere fast, uh, everyone knows the ins and outs of the US election, and I don't think I can add anything new here, only to posit this one observation. I just don't get it in the Anglosphere that left-leaning progressives have come a long way in the last decade, changing the way we view race, gender, inequality, and in many cases, changing the language and narrative of film, media, and the education system Why then, when it comes to voting a populist leader who offers to buck the trend of decades of neoliberal corruption, is the Anglosphere unable to gather the numbers to vote in, say, Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn, and instead settle between Trump and Johnson or unexciting party line towers from the Democrats or Labor? New Zealand's Jacinda Ardern is one sort of exception to the rule. So how did New Zealand manage to buck the political death wish that the rest of us are free-falling down? In my interview with Kelvin Thompson, I try to unpack this philosophical dilemma I have with politics. As a described maverick politician who has had decades of experience in major and now not-so-major parties, he has much wisdom and experience to bring to this discussion. It's worth giving a nod to who sustainable Australia are to give context to where Kelvin is now. Sustainable Australia Party is an independent community party from the political centre with a positive plan for an economically, environmentally, and socially sustainable Australia. The party describes sustainability in terms of meeting our society's needs without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. That is, a society operating within environmental limits, The party's sustainability platform includes a call to stabilise population as soon as possible, both globally and in Australia. While it is important that this podcast remains politically neutral, it is also a disservice if I did not give voice to political parties who have policies that intersect with the broader post-growth movement. Sustainable Australia is one of these parties that intersect after my interview with kelvin i'll highlight some other political parties and candidates that are at least partly on side before we begin i would like to play a beautiful and stirring song from local adelaide band the tangerines the song in question is called traced to the same page i hope you enjoy
1: A tries to the same
2: Kelvin, how are you? Uh, Good morning, Michael. I'm well. Kelvin,
0: can you have a shot at describing yourself and what you're passionate about in 10 key words, if possible?
2: Well, I'm I'm passionate about the environment. I'm passionate about Australia uh, and about giving the next generation the same chances that my generation had.
0: Now, I know that stewardship of the earth is very important to you. Uh, Can you describe a light bulb moment growing up? when you became aware of the limits of growth and how this has shaped your dedication to the natural world since.
2: Mm. When I was a teenager, I got interested in Australian birds and plants and animals and I read books about how the pioneers had damaged our environment and I got involved in the conservation battles of the time, like the Little Desert and the Lower Glen Elk. At that time, I had the optimistic or rosy view that we'd made a lot of mistakes in the past, land clearing, salinity, habitat destruction, but that we'd learned from those mistakes. And in the 1970s and 1980s, lots of land was set aside as national park. And when the federal government successfully intervened to stop the Franklin Dam in Tasmania, it seemed to me that we were on the right track. Uh, However, by the time we got to the 21st century, it became increasingly apparent to me that we were not on the right track. Uh, I was Labor's Shadow Minister for the Environment from 2001 to 2004, and I got to experience firsthand just how ferocious the pushback was to measures that would tackle climate change or tackle the deteriorating Murray-Darling Basin or protect native forests. So I had a few lightbulb moments at that time, and I'd always thought that population growth was a key driver of habitat destruction and environmental damage, uh, but I believed the demographers who said that our population growth was going to stop all by itself, uh, so it wouldn't be an issue in future. And indeed, I remember one of those demographers, Peter MacDonald, uh, giving a briefing to the Labor caucus in Canberra soon after I was first elected in 1996. But by 2009, when Treasury released revised projections showing Australia's population tracking for a 60% increase over the next few decades, rather than stabilising, I realised that those demographers had been talking bullshit. And I've since realised that many of those demographers are in fact employed by big end of town corporations or universities with a vested interest in population growth. So they're not giving us science at all. But they're giving us propaganda, and I realized that neither Australia's population nor the global population would slow down or stop unless we did something about it. So I guess 2009 was a light bulb moment for me.
0: Yeah, and you've uh, since then you joined politics to do something about it, and you have a lo- long and very illustrious career in politics uh, during your time in labour. Um, I know I called you a statesman um some other people <laughs> um called you a maverick from time to time. Now, if I was a politician, I'd take that as a compliment. Um, But you're you're known for your very individual approach in regards to environmental policy, population policy, overdevelopment, limits to growth. Um, How do you reflect on your time in office and what were some of the wins and challenges in getting your integrity through the quagmire of uh, the political reality, which is often and increasingly renowned for its lack of integrity?
2: (laughs) Well, it's a good question, Michael, and um, certainly from 2009 and, indeed, as Labor's shadow environment minister from 2001 to 2004, I didn't choose an easy path. Um, most MPs in Canberra make progress through developing a supporter base, and the, the wealthier and more powerful that supporter base, the better. Uh, for Labor MPs, having trade unions support was very important. In my case, pursuing environmental and population growth issues wasn't a great career move because neither business nor unions embraced it, and the media didn't either. And the media are very close to the real estate and property development industries. Their business model depends on that advertising. Uh, Despite the difficulties, I I think my time as Shadow Environment Minister did lay the foundation for some worthwhile steps that were subsequently taken by the Federal Labor Government elected in 2007. Uh, These included ratification of the Kyoto Protocol on Climate Change, increasing Australia's renewable energy target, putting water back into the Murray-Darling Basin and increasing our marine protected areas, in particular beyond the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, I have to confess that I don't think my campaign around population growth accomplished anything of substance. Uh, It did undermine and help pave the way for the removal of Peter Costello's ridiculous baby bonus. Uh, And when Julia Gillard became Prime Minister, she said she didn't agree with Kevin Rudd's Big Australia. Uh, But she didn't follow through on that, and no doubt she got ferocious pushback from behind the scenes from business, media, and so on. And indeed, we saw a bit of that again earlier this year when the Labor shadow minister, Christina Keneally, said she thought the migration program was too high. So again, she was subject to ferocious and ugly pushback on social media and from vested interests. So it is hard work. Uh, The only way anything gets done at all on this front is because the public wants it uh, and because opinion surveys constantly show two thirds of Australians don't support rapid population growth.
0: Um, a few episodes ago, I was talking to Dave Gardner from World Population Balance, and it's interesting when you hear from people abroad, say from USA, from Portugal, um, even from the UK, who suggest their experience from Australia is actually quite different, that in Australia are actually a lot more vocal about the issue than they are over there. So um, they often see Australia as a standard bearers, which is very difficult to actually hear <laughs> in Australia, because we think we're getting so much inertia, and yet everywhere else in the world it's only so much more silence. So um, perhaps you know, I can give you a compliment for um, helping to put Australia at the forefront of what's a pretty depressing <laughs> state it, of the debate. Yeah.
2: Michael, in in 2009 and 2010, Australia did have a population debate and I I certainly played a role in that. Um, The fact that Kevin Rudd referred to Big Australia uh, gave people something they could focus on, whereas um, up until then it had been essentially happening by stealth. um, Hmm. And people like Dick Smith got interested in it and and there was some uh, media focus on on the issue. So we, we did have a debate. And uh, you're right that when I went overseas and spoke to groups over there, they were very excited about Australia having a debate because they felt that they, they were unable to have such a debate uh, in their own country. But I do feel over time that we are experiencing uh, similar and familiar problems in Australia uh, to those faced in other countries in terms of having a, a population debate uh, and getting the political support for population stabilisation.
0: Uh, and, of course, you've since moved on for the major parties and your Chief of Staff at the Office of Clifford Hayes, a member of the Victorian Legislative Council for Sustainable Australia. Now, it's a few words there, so let me know if I mistitled <laughs> anything. No, no, all good. There. How does Sustainable Australia better represent your views on population and anything else um, you know, overdevelopment, uh, limits to growth, blah, blah, blah. And what have been some of the benefits for Victorians since Clifford took
2: office? Michael, the Sustainable Australia Party is a party of the centre. It's neither left-wing nor right-wing ideologically. It seeks to take an evidence-based approach to issues. Uh, It's very pro the environment and it wants Australia to be uh, environmentally, economically and socially sustainable. And one of the things I value about it is its commitment to Australian-owned and Australian-made and Australian manufacturing. Uh, I think that being self-sufficient is an essential component of being sustainable. However, the globalisation and the free trade deals embraced by the major parties have sent Australian manufacturing to the wall and made our economy more vulnerable and our society unsustainable. Uh, as you mentioned, our first MP, Clifford Hayes, was elected to the Victorian Upper House at the last state election to represent the Southern Metropolitan Region. He's successfully campaigned on a platform to stop overdevelopment. Uh, since being elected, he's put forward a private member's bill to return planning powers to councils. This would enable residents to have a genuine say in the character of their street and their neighbourhood rather than having the state government and VCAT impose high-rise apartments, multi-unit, dual occupancy developments everywhere you look, killing off our front yards and backyards and urban vegetation, and creating the coronavirus factories of the future. Uh, He's also campaigned against corruption, bringing forward a motion to ban campaign donations by property developers, And given the the disgraceful and shocking revelations at the IBAC inquiry into Casey Council, we need to guard against corruption at both state and local levels. And he's also campaigned against the bulldozing of properties with heritage value uh, and has been calling for a parliamentary inquiry into heritage protection in Victoria. Uh, We think that heritage protection is presently a mess and that property developers are getting away with blue murder.
0: Now, I believe he's striking a chord with the general public who, you know, are uh, breathing a bit of a sigh of relief. I'm sure he's very popular in Parliament at the moment.
2: <laughs> well, uh, it's an interesting uh, legislative context, the The crossbenchers potentially uh, can uh, make decisions and decide things if one or other of the major parties goes with them. The government's been able to get uh, uh, its legislation through Parliament with the support of other benches and hasn't defended, depended on his support for anything much. So uh, that's limited his influence and capacity to get these these motions through, however, there's a lot of support for what he does from the uh, the resident action groups in in areas like planning and throughout the Southern Metropolitan Region. I think there's there's a lot of interest in in what he's doing and a view that residents are entitled to a say in the character of their streets and their neighbourhood and their community.
0: Residents entitled to a say? <laughs> Who would have thought?
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's our view and we're sticking to it.
0: <laughs> Gonna need to lie down for a minute here. Now, this week at the time of this interview, probably not at the time of the broadcast. um, Richard D. Natale resigned as a leader of Greens, uh, and I read that he described his frustration around ten years of political inertia. Now there's an ongoing question in in activism and in society as to whether smaller parties can ever compete against the two major party juggernauts whose now this is my opinion, main distinguishing feature between them are their points of diminishing difference. Uh, this seems to be a phenomena across the Anglo sphere at the very least, uh, probably <laughs> in most places of the world where you've got two major parties, they argue each other, but they're actually not that different. Um, what do you see as a critical ongoing role of political engagement that makes this particular line of activism or advocacy worth continuing to pursue?
2: Uh, Michael, I think that the political system is increasingly failing its citizens. And I make that as a reflection, not simply about Australia, but also about uh, other countries with uh, comparable political systems, such as the US and the UK, and, and I'm not going to say that there was ever a golden age in politics where everybody loved their leaders who were all wise and benevolent, that, that's not true, but, but the basic levels of respect and decency and tolerance shown by both voters and leaders towards each other were higher than they are today. And faith and trust in both politicians and in the political system was higher than it is today. As I said, this is not only true in Australia. Uh, The debate in the UK over Brexit was very ugly. uh, And in the United States, the level of intolerance and plain nastiness is breathtaking. So, Donald Trump has been a shocker and hopefully we'll soon see the end of him, but it's completely naive to believe the left has been without fault and that the problem will go away when Donald Trump does. It it won't. Uh, I think that social cohesion is a big problem and it's one of the things why I'm attracted to a party of the centre, which I think has the capacity to unite people. I think we need policies which are universalist in character and have the capacity to bring people together.
0: Over the years, I have been very impressed that you've tackled overdevelopment in Melbourne um, and the role and the power that property developers have in shaping political policy. Now, Kelvin, how did we get here? Why is town planning so bloody insidious? And why do you think there has been inertia from the public in campaigning against property developers in the same way that people campaign against mining corporations?
2: Uh, yes, th- this is core business for the Sustainable Australia Party. Uh, the Melbourne that I grew up in had single-storey detached houses with front yards and backyards. They were affordable for working families, even those on modest incomes. They had places where children could play safely. Uh, later on, I became a councillor with the city of Coburg planning was a relatively small part of what we used to do as a council. Uh, councillors considered every single application we received, even to put in driveways. Um, when I was first elected to council, I thought it was a bit rough that we would tell people what they could and couldn't do on their own land. Uh, but after spending over seven years on the council, I realised that if we'd approved every application that was put in, the place would have turned into a slum and that you, you do get the city that you're for. Later for. The councils were amalgamated and much of the direct connection between councillors and ratepayers was lost. And I think that big councils have been a bad thing for residents. Furthermore, Melbourne's population, which was pretty stable when I was a councillor, started skyrocketing from the time John Howard ramped up migration around 2004. And it's now been increasing by over 100,000 each year. The state government goes along with this and tells the councils, you have to have thousands of extra residents every year. They put in place zoning and planning rules which favor developers over residents, and property developers, as the IBAC inquiry into Casey Council shows, duchess state MPs and candidates from both the Labor and Liberal parties, they duchess councillors, they duchess council officers, I think that the public is very aware of this, and resident action groups like uh, Planning Backlash and Save Glen Ira do a terrific job. But until we get a ban on property developer campaign donations and the other sneaky ways in which they buy influence, we will continue to have a problem with corruption and improper influence.
0: So, in your ideal vision of the future where communities are not actually run by property developers and the politicians they donate to, uh, how would our communities organise themselves if residents actually had a say, God forbid? Uh, What is the alternative?
2: I have been thinking about the problems of declining social cohesion and environmental degradation that we've been talking about. Uh, We've been hearing that expression, we're all in this together a lot during the coronavirus pandemic, The problem is that a lot of people don't feel like we're all in this together, whether we're talking about the pandemic or about life in general. And to make that phrase real rather than hollow rhetoric, I think we need to focus on some universal policies such as free and universal health, free and universal education and universal age pensions. And people will say, well, that sounds good, but how could you afford those things? And what I think we should do is put a stop to the population growth, run a balanced migration program, that is to say same number of people coming in and going each year, the money that we could save from not having the infrastructure costs associated with rapid population growth, new freeways, new public transport, new utilities, new everything, would be massive and better fund both students and retirees than we are doing now. And instead of running a vulnerable construction-based population Ponzi economy, we should have one based around self-sufficiency, manufacturing, and skills. And this is where free and universal education would play a key role. And and the other thing that we could do if we weren't running a growth economy is to focus on problem-solving. And I I don't think I've ever met a a politician or, or even a voter for that matter who didn't want us to do more about things like indigenous disadvantage, homelessness, mental ill health, drug addiction, uh, climate change and habitat destruction. But our leaders are simply too busy to give these problems the concerted attention they deserve. They're too busy with the hard hats and the high-vis vests and trying to make sure that the big infrastructure projects don't go pear-shaped. So I would move away from economic growth as our key indicator to health and well-being and fostering social cohesion through universal benefits and problem solving.
0: So to broaden the scope a little, do you have any thoughts on, I'm just going to cover any of the things we've discussed in previous episodes. Um, so from memory, that's a steady state economy, that's a universal Basic income, that's um, modern monetary theory, it's relocalization, it's alternatives even to capitalism, uh, rewilding. Do you see a classical system of um, capitalism but prior to the 1980s working um, within the limits to growth?
2: Yes, I, I, don't, I don't have our aspirations to overthrow the, the capital system. I don't think we have to move away from that, but, but we do have to move away from growth as our key performance indicator. Um, it is perfectly possible to make a profit every year and still be sustainable but it's not sustainable to say that that profit must increase every year and indeed increase exponentially. Uh, And I am attracted to some of the thinking around the the steady state economy and certainly to uh, uh, localism. I I think that uh, to have... Uh, political engagement and support and even for our, our mental health and wellbeing, people do have to have a say and some sense of a say in what's happening in their lives. And if they feel completely remote from their, their political leaders and so on, um, that is a recipe for for social discord, for corruption, for, for all sorts of problems. Uh, so making growth our key performance indicator and using GDP to measure it is taking us down a totally unsustainable road. I think it's going to collapse. Um, GDP, uh, as you know, measures everything, so uh, bushfires or terrorist attacks or mass shootings increase the GDP. So it's a poor measurement of how we're travelling as a society. And the ongoing failure of the media to even report GDP per capita, when they've been told often that GDP is a fake growth measurement, incites politicians and bureaucrats to go for population growth as a kind of performance-enhancing drug. You know, they can look like they're increasing the economy when ordinary Australians are not getting wealthier at all. Far from it. So... We should focus on indicators of health and well-being instead, and I'm pleased to see the New Zealand and Danish Prime Ministers taking steps in precisely this direction. So if you ask me, you know, what kind of world do I envisage? Well, I, I like to look at concrete examples of, of people making change that, that works and change for the better, and, and what I see in New Zealand and Denmark is very encouraging.
0: Now, for the listener benefit, uh, well, I, I don't have to ask you on a population because you've already brought it up and I think <laughs> um, we're, we can agree that we're in furious agreement, um, but what do you say to the doctor demographies out there? Now, I don't think I can say names, um, but, you know, who always say, oh, You know, we can have population growth on a finite planet if we have renewables, innovation and technology just because we're not clever enough. But if only we grow more, then we'll be clever enough.
2: Uh, Michael, uh, people want a vision of the future that's cheery and doesn't require sacrifice. Um, they want to believe that we can solve our environmental problems with a technological fix. Uh, and indeed, a lot of environmental groups have lost the courage to talk about population, which they, they used to have, and they now encourage the view that there are technological fixes. Uh, but technological innovation has never solved environmental problems. You go right back to the, uh, Europe's problem centuries ago of dwindling wood supplies, uh, fossil fuels helped but soon generated energy demand on a scale which is now heating the entire planet. Uh, The domestication of cattle and sheep turned non-arable areas into food-producing ones, but their methane production and land clearing for grazing now destroys wildlife habitat and exacerbates climate change. Nitrogen fertilisers now pollute aquatic ecosystems. Long-distance trade in food has brought transport emissions and plastic waste and pesticides and the loss of crop biodiversity. And more efficient technologies have always been accompanied not by a fall in resource use, but by a rise. So uh, farmers who use drip irrigation technology to improve their use of water are able to acquire more land to grow more crops. And since uh, 1975... American energy consumed per dollar of GDP has been cut by half, but total energy use has gone up by 40%. And in aviation, fuel efficiency has increased by 40%, but total fuel use has gone up by 150%. So technology, we'd love it to cut it, but it won't cut it. Uh, What we have to get our heads around is that for most of human history, human population was less than 1 billion and it crossed 2 billion less than 100 years ago, but it's now well over 7 billion, tracking for 9 or 10 billion, and that cannot happen without disastrous consequences for both us and for the other species that we share this world with. So we have to get our heads around the fact that in the past 50 years, our population has more than doubled, while the population of Uh, Birds, mammals, reptiles, fish has been cut by 60%, and that is a very different picture from the one I envisaged 50 years ago when as a teenager I got interested in protecting the environment.
0: So for anyone into post-growth out there, uh, why should they vote for Sustainable Australia? What policies do they have that would resonate?
2: Well, exactly, Michael. And as we've been discussing, the Sustainable Australia Party is very concerned about protecting the environment, uh, does not support the population Ponzi scheme, wants to see a more diverse economy, one where there's a much greater role for manufacturing than the one we presently have. Uh, We want to give residents a say in in local issues. Uh, We want to protect them from overdevelopment. Uh, We want to uh, flush the corruption out of our political system. Uh, And so for for a whole range of reasons, I think that uh, Sustainable Australia is offering a A sensible alternative and of course people can uh, um, google sustainable australia party on the the website to see our our policies or uh, also look on the facebook page of clifford hayes mp because there's lots of good stuff there as well
0: fantastic and you just answered my very final question was where people to go so um, do you still have a blog site
2: where people can go if they
0: want to follow you personally
2: or I I haven't I haven't been uh, Facebook posting for quite some time Michael I I might uh, I might resume it in due course but I I haven't been uh, doing it so I I don't direct people to uh, uh, to my own site but certainly the Sustainable Australia Party site carries uh, a blog from me where I've been uh, putting up uh, statements from time to time
0: well, thank you so much for your time, Kelvin. It's been uh, great to reconnect virtually. Um, it's always a pleasure talking to you. I, I speak for myself. I'm going to make no assumptions whether <laughs> that's
2: a two-way street. <laughs> I en- enjoy the conversation and uh, congratulations on what you're doing there. I think the, the podcasts are a great idea and um, we certainly need people to uh, Think about the future in a uh, in a, a clear eyed way, uh, and uh, uh, as as we've been discussing, unfortunately, there's uh, not enough of it at present.
0: Exactly. All right. Thank you, Kelvin, who is uh, making politics not a dirty word. Still, thank you. You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast. I'd like to again send my thanks to Kelvin for taking part in this politically themed interview and the excellent dedication he has put toward the cause for so many years. Now, any post growth advocate worth their salt may be forgiven for thinking that voting is a waste of time, given the growth agenda of both major parties and the reluctance of environmental parties to take on deep structural post growth issues. However, On closer inspection, there are actually a few outliers out there. For example, Animal Justice Party, while not really about the limits of growth, at least are a counter to the anthropocentrism in our modern society by bringing a voice for the animals into Parliament. AJP run at federal, state and often local council elections. The New Liberals and the Australian Democrats both have policies that encourage progressive means of achieving egalitarian outcomes and countering wealth inequality and political corruption. The New Liberals promote modern monetary theory and are sympathetic to steady state economics, while the Democrats have been historically supportive of sustainable population policies. Save the Planet Party offers some very hardline environmental policies in line with the realities of a climate emergency. Based mainly in the Darabin local government area in Melbourne, in which I live, the party support independent candidates to run at federal, state and local council elections around the Darabin and Cooper wards. Speaking of local government, I'm very pleased to note at the Darabin Council elections just gone, an independent candidate ran on the issue of degrowth. Craig Walters did not win a position in his ward but still managed to collect nearly 500 local votes without any extensive campaign trail. Craig is also a member of the Green Wizards who are dedicated to the degrowth movement. Now, did I leave anyone out? probably. If you know of anyone else, drop me a line on the contact form so I can share for next episode. By the way, for the next episode, I'll be interviewing someone quite famous, which I'm very excited about. I won't give the name away just yet, but if you're into permaculture, you'll definitely know him. Until then, though, Take care, enjoy the newfound freedoms if you're like me in Melbourne and enjoy the wild ride,
1: which is the USA elections. Fun times.